Vibration analysis is something we throw around a lot in the maintenance and reliability community. Many of us have studied it. Many of us have got certifications in it. But there are some of us that are new to vibration analysis. And, and for many, it can be a little mystical. It can be a little overwhelming trying to understand the measurements that is being taken during a vibration analysis. What is an FFT and why are we taking the measurements the way we are? That's why as we get back to the basics in our series, we invited Dr. Carl Hoffower to the show. Carl and I go back a lot of years, and what I particularly liked and why I invited him to the show is his way to boil it down into real-life analogies about a rock getting thrown into a lake type analogies to give us that feeling of why we're taking these measurements. But before we get into back to the podcast of back to the basics of vibrational analysis with Dr. Carl, a quick shout out to our sponsor. Well, if you are a regular listener to our podcast, you have heard of our span, our sponsor, Nano Precise. Once again, we want to thank Nano Precise for helping keeping this podcast going. And if you haven't reached out to Nano Precise and you're considering looking at vibration analysis, in fact, if you're considering looking at six variables to help you predict and classify your failures, and you haven't reached out to Nano Precise, I'm going to ask you, what are you waiting for? I invite you to go to nanoprecise.io, check out all their new um, news updates in terms of the awards they're winning, also the certification. They just got awarded their patent for the technology about using AI and vibration analysis. These guys are cutting edge, and I'd highly recommend you go and check them out. Oh yeah, and one more thing before we get going. If you have knowledge, experience, ideas you want to share about the core concepts of maintenance and reliability, and you want to be on, be you want to be on, oh my gosh, I'm going to get this out. I'm not purposely going to leave this in so you can hear me struggle with this edit. If you want to be on the podcast series, Back to the Basics, because you are an expert in a specific topic, it can be lubrication analysis, it can be motor current analysis, it can be root cause analysis, it can be failure motors and effect analysis, it can be the people aspect, it can be the budgeting aspect, but if you believe that you have content to share that would benefit Back to the Basics, we invite you to reach out to us, reach out to me personally, this is Blair speaking, or Steve, and we would love to have you on this podcast. And again, our tent with Back to the Basics is anyone new or needs a refresher on the fundamentals of maintenance and reliability, that's what this podcast series is all about. Please, if you do have an idea or expertise you want to share, please share that with our audience. All right, we'll get back to Dr. Carl now. Hey, Carl, welcome to the Maintenance Disrupted Show. Hey, thanks, Blair. Appreciate it. Uh, glad to be on your show and uh, talk about some good stuff. Yeah, exactly. And Carl, we've we've been around the block. We've we've been the same groups of people. Our community is quite small. So I've always wanted to, and I've always loved your approach um, to vibration, specifically your background. Um, and I thought you'd be, as we, as we start to go down what we're calling our back to the basics, um, podcast series where we're looking at the technology and, and processes that are, are you know, helping companies uh, um, on the reliability journey. And, and when I was thinking like, geez, who could I get on from a vibration point of view? It's also good timing because you've been posting a lot recently about um, a lot of vibration training you've been doing on LinkedIn. I said, oh, okay, you know what? That'd be interesting from Carl. And what's always, I've always um, 
and I go back into when I started in this industry, um, the analogy always was always to people. So as humans, so what do we do as a human to check if we're in quote unquote good health, right? So, um, you know, we get an ECG if our heart's having problems and that's similar to vibration. We, we, uh, we get our blood taken, which is simple, which is analogy to oil analysis, right? And that's kind of the first way I've learned about all these technologies. And then, yeah. um, and then you came on board and you have a medical background too. And I thought that was interesting in your switch over to, um, our side of the world. So maybe for the audience, just give them a little background on who you are and, and your company. Sure. Happy to. So uh, my official title is Dr. Carl Hofauer. Uh, when I left healthcare, I was the chief of phys med and rehab for a medical group in Silicon Valley in California. And uh, I, I will say that you owe me a beer if you want to hear all the right ways why American healthcare is an unhealthy business and why. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh Suffice to say is that I made the decision to leave healthcare, left the medical group and started trying to figure out what am I going to do? And if you live in California, especially in Silicon Valley, there the pricing there is so high. There's a voracious need for income immediately. And a family member pointed me towards a company that they were working at that had was innovative at the time. Now it seems pretty basic, but they had taken a Palm Pilot and created a sled that they would connect to the Palm Pilot and turn it into a vibration spectrum analyzer. And they thought I might be interested. And I've always been a science guy. In fact, most people who become doctors and stuff are really usually already attracted to science um, and, you know, just the thing of it, figuring out what makes something tick, why something reacted some way, why did the, you get this result when these circumstances were there? So when I heard about vibration spectrum analysis, I was fascinated because the last time I had done any spectrum analysis was in my, my undergrad in chemistry, where we would put a substance in the gas chromatograph and we'd get a spectrum, right? We'd get a range of things that were present there. And then it would say, well, this correlates to calcium this correlates to sodium and what you did was put salt inside of this test thing right so when i started learning about it i thought well i'm not sure if this is a business uh, that i want to be involved in so i went on a fact-finding tour and uh, i've said this often but it's the truth i was in a hog slaughtering plant <laughs> in nebraska where they process 10 to fifteen thousand hogs a day which was mind boggling. Really it's what's amazing is how trying to describe to people when I was at a place where the bearing was seven feet in diameter <laughs> you know, and, and the scale of the monstrosities of industrial practice and industrial manufacturing and stuff is, is amazing. And we're down below this thing. I'd already been pelted by, by this long line of carcasses of pork and, they just passed right through it like they were sliding on on ice and just skated right through the barriers. No big deal. And I'm getting smacked by these things. And everybody's laughing like, hey, look at the dock, you know. And, and I had a lot to learn. But this guy was pulling an amber substance out of this big machine with a syringe. And as you spoke about earlier, the guy was taking an oil sample, just like we do a blood test. And that's really where the light came on for me was oh my gosh, they're doing diagnostic tests on assets that can't talk like a pediatrician. And as I jokingly refer to this, and I say this with love to all the operations and maintenance people out there, is that I, I started to realize over the next year of learning all of these technologies is that you have these divorced parents who don't get along. You've got the overprotective single mother 
the maintenance person who's like, don't do this. And you got to run it like this and don't put this in there and don't do this. And then you've got the deadbeat dad who's kind of standing out to the side, chain smoking a cigarette going, ah, just let it run. I mean, we just get it wrong. <laughs> right. Right. And uh, so, you know, I, I had this idea like, oh, maintenance and operations, and they all work together. And I found out that, that they have very different goals. You know, maintenance is there to make, get the thing running, but, but wants it running the best way possible. Whereas operations, wants it running the best way possible to produce the maximum amount of whatever they're producing, right? And sometimes they're at odds with each other because maintenance knows, hey, I need to get in and do this small thing now. And production just sees that as an interruption to their production quota. So they don't want to allow access to the machinery. But then when it fails spectacularly, people look at the maintenance department and say, how did you let this happen? And they just throw their hands up. But in my opinion, the the heroic people in this equation are the maintenance guys. Because they just shake their head and say, okay. And they run in there and they try to fix it as fast as they can. And so, you know, when we look at predictive maintenance with vibration and it's, you know, vibration is a fantastic tool for rotating equipment. Some fixed equipment has some vibration issues, but by and large in industry, right, we're usually dealing with the rotating equipment for vibration analysis to help us. And therefore that's one tool vibration is, but vibration has never helped me diagnose a, uh, a bad breaker or, or a fuse that's about to go out like thermal imaging can, right. Or partial discharge monitoring and stuff. So I loved how predictive maintenance was very similar to the diagnostic tests we did in healthcare. Uh, you know, whether it was a, a blood test, an EKG or ECG, um, a nerve connection velocity test, you know, we would, poke people with, with electrical probes and see how their nerves were functioning uh, down the arms and down the legs in the department I ran. Uh, we also did plain film radiography, what people would call x-rays. And I wasn't a radiologist, but I did have an extra license to operate an x-ray. And so I ran the x-ray room for the medical group as well as the phys med stuff. And so that background of trying to diagnose a problem has served me well also some of my physics and chemistry in college has served me well, where we look to see not just, Hey, you have a bad bearing, but why did this bearing go bad? And as I've been speaking with some guys who had retired, you know, some of the greatest gains that vibration programs had wasn't just saying there's a bad bearing, but being able to dive deeper and go, this was why these bearings failed. This is why these bearings don't fail. And if you can eliminate those situations or those causes for those things failing early, you can dramatically increase the longevity of that equipment. I think that's kind of the big thing that we're looking at, right? Right. So, yep. No, exactly. That's a, I always, I've, I've heard that story and I love that story and how you, how you came into our our niche community and that analogy of, of what you used to do with, with people. I think it's going to resonate really, really well with our, um, with our listeners. And and so you started Failure Prevention Associates. You've been around for, well, I've known you for a number of years, but how long have you guys been around? Since 2007. Yeah. So I started, in fact, my very first event was the International Maintenance Conference, which I think is where we met years That's ago. Right. That's right. But my first ever was in Dana- Daytona Beach in Florida mm. with Terry's thing. Yeah. And uh, 
So that was what really opened my eyes. So I had my experience of doing, I, I did a fact-finding tour. I flew around the country. Uh, I was in Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, Texas, and then North and South, Northern and Southern California, and then Oregon and Washington, and kind of came back and said, yeah, I think I could do this. And one of the things I kept asking people was, what are you trying to do? And they're just it, what came up was we're trying to prevent these failures. Mm-hmm. And that's actually where the name of the company came from was failure prevention was from the experience of talking with these people in maintenance and what they're trying to accomplish. So then when I went to the international maintenance conference, that's where I saw, Oh my gosh, look at that. There are oil analysis, you know, devices mm-hmm. here that you can get. There's ultrasonics, uh, not just thickness testing and certainly not, you know, when I heard ultrasound, I'm thinking, Oh yeah. You know, does my child have 10 fingers? That's, and 10 right. That's right. Right. What sex is my baby and stuff like that. And we were actually doing some novel stuff. We were using ultrasound to look at ligaments and tendons to see how badly they were damaged to make a better assessment on the recovery of the athletes. And so that's what I was used to was that B scan ultrasound, not ultrasound detection like UE systems has and SDT and all those, those guys, which I found fan fascinating as well. And I really like that technology. I think ultrasound detection pound for pound dollar for dollar gives you more return than any other technology out there. And I'm not just saying that because that's your, who your employer right. is. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. like, I like, am going to isolate that clip when no, I, <laughs> no, <laughs> it is. It's, it's very the ease and, and versatility, right? Um, yeah, it is. It range. just gives you so much. And, and ultrasound detection saved my life when I was trying to sell a thermal imaging camera system to a coded container board plant in central California. And we were about to open some doors. This is before I'd gone through my NFPA 70 echo training. So, mm. uh, you know, I was just the sales guy at the time. I hadn't really done anything in the industry as a, as a practitioner. And I said, Hey, before we open these cabinets to take a look and see how well this camera works for you, we're going to, I'm going to turn on an ultrasound and we are going to listen for some sounds and we probably will hear nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. We'll probably, you know, it'll just be quiet and we can move on. And I turned the thing on and as soon as it activated, the headphones started buzzing and clicking like Frankenstein's laboratory. And I moved the detector away from the, the aisle we were, it was pointed towards. And of course the sound went away and I pointed it back and everybody looked at me and we started walking down the aisle to bird dog, which where the sound was coming from. Now, mind you, the gentleman who was giving me, who invited me to the plant had just returned to work six months earlier from his arc flash injury. Interesting. And he was melted like Freddy Krueger from his neck down his right arm and right shoulder, uh, all the way down to his hand, where he had opened up the door and from his wrist to his neck was completely burned in that very MCC, that motor control center. So he was already getting nervous and we bird dogged it down to one particular cabinet door. And I had show them, look, I go left, it disappears. I come back to the cabinet, it's there. I go right, it disappears, come back. Put the thermal imaging camera up there and you can see two dull red rectangles where the fuses were getting ready to cook off. And it was only like six doors down the row and it was right at eye level. Like it was the door that we, if we'd opened more than one or two doors, we had a good probability of opening that door. And so we backed off and they shut down the system and, and went in there and repaired it. And that poor guy, Mikey, he, you know, and, 
he did not have a good day. It was, you, know, you want to talk about a triggering event. That was a true triggering event. And so that to me started showing not just the value, but the power of how much things can go awry and hurt people, not just losing some product or some profit, but also injuring individuals if something is allowed to run to failure. So it was a very sobering moment at that point. And I've kept that lesson. And I, it's, the ultrasound has served me well for a couple of years as a compliment to what we mainly do, which our bread and butter is vibration analysis. You know, we have people that go out uh, every week and they're collecting vibration data on rotated equipment. We also have online systems and we're monitoring online systems for clients to help them catch things in between, you know, the weekly or the monthly uh, vibration routes. And uh, yeah, that's worked yeah. out very well. Good, good. And then all that experience and technology, I think, you know, you're leading that, that charge of, of, you know, one technology won't rule them all. And, and also I think where, where your, your message has always been is, and, and what I appreciate is, um, you know, d- detecting the early onset of failure is one thing, but trying to identify why it's happening and eliminating it in the first place, uh, should be the, the top priority. Um, yes. and, I, and I assume that translated over to, to humans as well as you're adjusting people and people are all crooked and broken. Okay. Well, what activities are, are you doing that are causing you to be broken? Um, but yeah. I guess as, as we get into that, Carl is, is, you know, the really intent of this is to, to look at vibration and, and, and in your opinion, what, what is the best way? And I was going to say to describe this, someone that doesn't know. So you're, you're very close with me <laughs> beginning under this interview, but how would you describe what is the act of, of vibration measurement? Like what are we doing when we're taking a vibration measurement? Sure. So, well, there's two values for vibration analysis. One is, is just the overall vibration level. If it rotates, it vibrates. All right. Here's the simplicity. And I learned this. I wish I could remember her name, but she stole it from somebody else that she was learning from a, a company. that doesn't exist anymore called Anna Darko, but uh, ma'am, whoever you are, we were the, the PSM uh, manager there. I, I really appreciate uh, this thing is <laughs> if it rotates, it vibrates. If it shakes, it breaks. I like that. And I know you're more simplistic than that, right? So we just don't want things to break because if they break suddenly, the costs are usually significant in profit, in uh, people, in parts, uh, as well as just, you know, where if there's there's usually then some environmental releases and things like that whether it's spills on the ground or flaring uh to burn off the excess chemicals or you know there's always some sort of downside and we've had simple things where a guy came back and he told the control room operator hey this agitator isn't running the guy looks at the control board he goes I got good amps. Actually, the amps are a little bit lower than they usually are. He says, yeah, that's because the coupling is gone. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So the motor is humming along, but that agitator is not agitating. And had they not caught that, had our vibration analyst not been out there and during his route noticed that this vibration amplitude significantly crashed and then inspected further and noticed the coupling had torn itself in half and, uh, that ended up being a significant thing because the batch was $1.2 million in substances that they were mixing together. And if they weren't sufficiently mixed together for the next process, they hadn't had that detected and, and brought to their attention, they would have lost that batch. So, but the crazy thing about that is that thing, they were like, well, why didn't you guys detect that the coupling was off? It wasn't a coupling alignment issue. What it was is purchasing had 
gotten a discount for an off-label, low-quality rubber uh, elastomeric coupling, and it had sheared and failed. And there's a talk that I give about the five major things that affect reliability that have nothing to do with maintenance. And actually it's, it's Ron Moore's materials. Ron Moore is, mm-hmm. if you haven't, you know, read any of his books, I highly recommend you, you search out Ron Moore's uh, books. Um, but he had gone over some things and I was like, he's so right about that. So I had put a presentation together for some people to talk about procurement can absolutely drive down the availability and reliability of your equipment and has nothing to do with maintenance right? Your, your choice of your vendor um, in the quality of the equipment or the quality of the parts that you're getting absolutely drives down the quality of your reliability. And so for vibration analysis, right? If it rotates, it shakes uh, or it, it, it vibrates, but if it shakes, it breaks. So with vibration analysis, the first thing was always just how much vibration do I get? If it's running smooth, the vibration amplitude will be low. And as it raises up in amplitude, it gets worse and worse. But, you know, people would say, okay, now the vibration's high. Now what do I do? And that f- special math formula that was actually invented by that French baron, um, Jean-Baptiste Fourier, who was working for Napoleon, he came up with this transform that takes vibration data from the time world and puts it out into what frequencies are present. And so to be able to assign the amplitude rise is related to this frequency, which correlates to this component, was fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. And I think that that huge change, you know, Mark Richardson who's the founder of uh, Vibrant Corporation with Emmy Scope software for uh, modeling vibration. Mark was telling me about the first time that it really came to be in the modern world. And he told me he was working on a project with GM at Hewlett Packard. And they jokingly, well, someone said, would it be nice to have a Fourier transform to see what frequencies are present in the time waveform they were looking at. And this guy goes, well, if you ran it through the supercomputer and, Guy goes, what, a fast Fourier transform? And it was kind of said as a joke. And yet that dramatically changed what we know now as vibration spectrum analysis to give you what frequencies are present and how they correlate to components. So amplitude tells you if it's good or bad. Frequency tells you what component. And so you can get to the point where most of our reports, like you need to procure and plan to do this repair of this component. And the costs are dramatically decreased. So the downtime is less, the costs are less if you're using a vibration analysis program to monitor the condition of your equipment. But just because you found a bad bearing or you found misalignment or, or looseness or something along those lines, you have to take the next step. Okay, why is that happening? So over the last couple of weeks, a wireless sensor monitoring program has found these uh, fans to have excessive vibration. The diagnosis from the remote analyst was, fan imbalance. When we sent out our vibration analysts, which in my company, you are not eligible to be a field analyst unless you've had 10 years of mechanical repair experience. And the reason being is because you want people who understand what's going on with that equipment and what failures have they run into in the past so they can then correlate that to the vibration data because vibration is just a tool. Right. So I often jokingly say, like, you can come to me with a cough as a doctor, and that cough might be allergies. It might be 
the flu, might be a cold. Uh, it might be esophageal reflux and you might be irritating the lining of your stomach and it could be cancer. It would be ridiculous for me based on just a basic exam of listening to you breathe to say, ah, I hear something in your lungs. It might be cancer. Let's cut it out. Right. Right. No one's going to go that drastic. Exactly. But you want to have correlations. You shoot a chest X-ray, right? You have other technology that you use. And so with vibration, it's a fantastic thing. But if you can correlate that, if it's oil-filled bearings and you take an oil sample and you can correlate changes in the oil showing metal particles that would correlate with the bad bearing and things like that, you have a stronger understanding of the correctness of your diagnosis. And then from there, you want to take the next step of, okay, how could this come about? So going back to the fans last week at this plant that the online system had detected was not in balance. Um, some of the highest vibration I've seen in a long time. And it was in the direction of the stiffness of the structure, which points more to resonance. But even then with resonance, right? You go, okay, well, why it wasn't resonating the last couple of months. Why is it resonating now? Well, then it was, oh, hey, um, because they lost integrity between the grout at the bottom and the skid and the grout was all cracked. And then we found out that this was a rush job when they put it together and they didn't let the grout cure properly. And they knew that from the beginning, but they were willing to spend the time, you know, to get a couple of years of production out of this fan before it finally failed. So there's those types of choices that people made that, Hey, we know this isn't right, but we're just going to get this thing running because we've got to get the plant going. If you understand that that's how it was, you know, set up and you want to pay the price later, okay, that's fine. But understand you're now having a fan that's ripping itself apart. So now you're right. going to shut it down for several days and get a team in there and chip that out and put it in, let it cure and put it right. So, right. So yeah. no, I appreciate it. And that was an interesting story about how the, the fast and the, and the FFT came about. Uh, interesting story. I never knew that. And I guess for, for our listeners, we're, we're, you know, you, you mentioned about taking time series data and, and converting that over through an FFT into the frequency domain. So instead of your, your axis being time, it's now frequency. So when, when you take a vibration measurement first in the, um, the time domain, what is that measurement? So if you were to take a Sharpie and duct tape it to the side of a pump, let's say. Mm -hmm. And then you've got a blank white piece of paper that you've got on a clipboard and you drag that clipboard with the white paper across that Sharpie tip. That Sharpie is going to be bouncing up and down. Absolutely. Right. And then you're going to create a graph of how the vibration is over time as you slide that by. And so that waves or the, that wave that you're creating there is the way we document uh, the initial vibration. And then we measure how high that vibration was moving. We could measure how far it physically moved, how fast it was moving, and how much force was in that movement. And those three ways of measuring vibration, you know, I, I like to relate it to um, a, a drag racer, a drag car in a uh, quarter mile. Like if I told you I had a car that could do the quarter mile in 27 seconds, and you had experience with drag racing the quarter mile, you would know that was a very slow car, right? Mm -hmm. Versus I had something that was all tuned up, top fuel, long, long uh, 
dragster and it did that in 4.3 seconds eh, that's a lot faster so we have a distance a quarter mile we see how fast can we do it we also know when you step on the gas and you feel yourself thrown back in your seat you feel force as you take off and so you can measure the force you can measure the speed and you can measure the distance it moves in vibration analysis and that force speed and distance force speed and distance yeah okay so in the early days of vibration, you just measured how much distance did it move? How much shaking did you get? And that's usually like inches per second, millimeters per second, or is that? Actually, that would just be distance. We start with distance. So we're going to okay. measure that in inches or millimeters. Right. Okay. So then you want to measure speed. Well, speed is the, the rate at which displacement occurs. And displacement is your distance that a body moves. So, if you look how far something's moving back and forth, so you think of a ship at, at, at a dock. If you look between the edge of the ship and the actual dock surface, there'll be movement there. Won't be a little fast, but there'll mm. be movement. There'll be several inches to several feet, depending on how bad the seas are, if the tide's coming in or out, right? So that's your distance. That's what we we call displacement. And some people remember about if you sit in a bathtub, if you fill a bathtub to the edge and then you climb in that bath, you're going to displace a lot of water. You're going to move a lot of water out of that bathtub. Right. So you never fill it to the brim, right? So displacement has to do is how much things move. So you, the distance a body travels is your displacement. Then you want to measure how fast it moves. So that's your velocity. Well, that's distance divided by the time it takes to move. So in miles per hour or kilometers per hour is speed or velocity. In vibration, we have a much smaller scale. So instead of miles per hour, we do inches per second or millimeters per second. It's the same thing. You're measuring speed. So you're measuring the rate at which displacement occurs. And then the final thing is the rate at which the the velocity occurs, which is our acceleration. So if you're sitting at a red light, the light turns green, you step on the gas pedal, you get thrown back in your seat, you feel force. And in North America, we call that G-force, right? Uh, Outside in the metric world, right, that would be millimeters per second per second. Now, to go back to velocity, right, that's the rate at which displacement occurs is inches per second. When we want to measure the rate at which velocity occurs, that would be our our force measurement, or that's what we call acceleration. And that would be inches per second per second or inches per second squared, or as we like to refer to it in Gs. And then in the metric world, it would be millimeters per second squared or millimeters per second squared. And why do we care about those three? Do they tell us different things about the health of that equipment? Absolutely. So with displacement, if you take a ball, I don't care if it's a soccer ball, football, basketball, you spin it on your finger. If you spin it at a certain revolutions per minute, it holds perfectly still. It does not wobble at all, right? Right. But as it slows down, it does start to wobble. And you put a ruler next to that, you can measure how much physical movement it's doing, how much wobbling it's doing. That would be measuring displacement. That would be measuring the physical movement of that rotating object, right? But as a certain RPM, you don't measure, it doesn't move anymore. It holds perfectly still. So displacement is very, very good at monitoring lower RPM objects. 
things that physically move. But at a certain RPM, it doesn't move anymore. So displacement loses its value. And that was the very first system of monitoring vibration was measuring displacement. So then they had to invent a new sensor technology and they invented velocity probes and they would measure things in velocity. And that would be in your millimeters or your inches per second. And it wasn't until the 1980s with integrated circuits that were micro circuitry that they actually had the ability to measure force. And they were able to take crystals that generate electricity when they're subjected to vibration. And so like many things in medicine, we talk in Greek and Latin and the same thing in, in other scientific inventors. So a piezoelectric or piezoelectric crystal is just saying piezo or piezo is Greek for squeeze. So when you say piezoelectric or piezoelectric, you're saying if I squeeze this crystal, it generates electricity. And what they found is they can correlate the amount of vibration, physical vibration that crystal undergoes by how much electricity it generates. And that's how you can convert mechanical vibration waves into electrical waves for analysis on a computer system. So we can measure velocity gives us a good range of things from low, middle to high speeds. Acceleration is really good with forces. So if you drift off the edge of the highway and you hit those rumble strips, Mm -hmm. and I don't know for your audience if they have rumble strips outside of North America, but I know in Canada and United States they do. Um, I'm hoping they do in Europe as well. But if you drift to the edge of your of your roadways, there's often little rumble strips, dents that they put into the ground to remind you, hey, you're getting to the edge of the road. Quit tweeting. <laughs> right, exactly. <Yeah. laughs> or having a Facebook argument while you're driving. So no offense to Facebook, you know, on social media, right? So the rumble strips are there to to provide vibration as a sense, right? And it's always interesting how loud the vibration is when you drive at 30 miles an hour in one of those rumble strips versus 80 or 70 miles per hour, whatever. So the intensity changes. And so velocity gives you good low, middle, and high frequencies, but dents in the road are very similar, like a damaged bearing. Those rumble strips remind me of, of bearing outer race uh, damage. And when you drift to that side, the force is dramatic. So acceleration gives you high frequency force information displacement gives you low frequency balance and alignment information and then in the middle of the road is your velocity so if someone are going to start a, a vibration analysis program you want an analyzer that can definitely give you data in the velocity domain because that gives you a wide range of frequencies to view but you want to be able to convert that data to look at high frequencies for things like bearings and gear mesh frequencies uh, anything that's high frequency you want that on to be looked at with acceleration and then lower frequencies, protection, shutdown systems, things like that. Displacement is an excellent, excellent way to view your data. But regardless, your first thing you have to measure is the vibration amplitude over time. So think about your next to a pond and you took a handful of gravel and you threw it into the pond. You would get a mishmash of different waves coming from all those small pebbles and rocks hitting the water, right? And so if you look at those waves coming at you and emanating from where you threw the rocks in, that's essentially what we're doing with vibration analysis. We're measuring the waves of reactions to rotating forces and product going through the equipment. And we're just taking a measurement of that. And we're measuring the vibration waves that are emanating from the machine over a period of time. 
And from there, then we use that Fourier transform to convert into a range of peaks or frequencies that we then correlate. You go, okay, this frequency mesh matches the bearing faults for the inner and the outer race of this bearing. Right. This frequency matches more the uh, alignment of the motor shaft to the pump shaft or something like that. So there's lots of, co there's constants that you need to know about. And it's, it's one of the penalties that people don't understand. They go, I just want a vibration program. Great. Do you really want a vibration program or do you want the product that the knowledge that a vibration analysis program gives you? Because if you want to do it on your own, that's great, but it's a commitment. Right. It's a commitment to purchase an analyzer with software. It's a commitment to place somebody in charge of that analyzer and software to set up the configurations to measure it properly. Um, I tell this story and my wife's not in the room. So uh, we, we took a, uh, a trip down to Cozumel out of Galveston on a cruise ship. And the next morning we wake up and we're at sea and she says, Hey, is it going to rain? And I look out the window on the port side of the boat that we're at. And I can't tell you where the blue ocean and the blue sky come together. It's just perfectly clear. I said, no, it looks great. Why? She goes, well, I'm wearing this new bathing suit. I don't want to get it wet. And I roll my eyes and go, why would you want a bathing suit that you don't want to get wet? Well, it had metal on it and I don't want it to you know, bleed out or rust or anything. And I just roll my eyes, think that's ridiculous, but laugh and say, okay, well, we get up onto the Lido deck. We see all the pools there. Well, on the port side of the boat, a big old rain cloud comes in and rains all over the place. We had to seek shelter. Now, was I wrong? Of course I was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but from my analysis of the data, my measurement was correct on my assessment on the data I had. Looking out one side of the ship, I had correctly assumed uh, as, uh, or asserted there was no, no rain. However, for the situation I was in, my measurement configuration was not set up properly. I should have checked north, south, east, and west. Right. I should have checked the port and the starboard side besides the bow and the aft to ascertain if we we're going to head into a rainstorm. Same thing with vibration analysis. You can set up a measurement parameter that does not capture the frequencies of the fault that is present because you didn't set it deep or wide enough. And so that's part of the commitment is being educated on this piece of equipment I have. How fast is it going? How do I set up my measurement parameters? Because I've got tons of examples. In fact, small little advertisement. I do teach a certification class uh, for level one and level two vibration analysis. And in level one, I have a section where I go over, I call it the rookie mistakes and how vibration can trick you. And we go over case studies at the end of the training to challenge people to use a methodical approach to diagnosing the problems because a vibration analyzer is only as good as the person who's holding it. And it's only as accurate as the measurement configuration setup. If you don't set it up properly, which some people just go, well, this is what the, the sales guy set up. Okay. I was a sales guy once. I've now gone through multiple levels of vibration training, and I've actually managed vibration programs here in Texas. Yeah. And going out, and I'll tell you, it is a, I, I say this all the time. It is a dramatically different thing to collect vibration data, sit at your desk and make a, an analysis of what's going on versus having a plant manager breathing over your neck saying, if this machine goes down, I'm going to lose $1.2 million an hour and I can't afford that. You better make the right call. Right. Right. Totally different world. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And, <laughs> and I tell guys in the class, you are going to be picked, right? There's going to be an issue and they're going to go, hey, vibration guy. 
you know? And then the guy's like, I'm not a vibration guy. He goes, sure you are. You went through the level one class last week. You're the uh, vibration expert, right? <laughs> and there's four levels of certification you can go through. So I tell him, you know, you're going to be dangerous if you went through just the first level, because that's just getting the nomenclature. You're going to be able to speak a different language, but there's a difference between someone who is a, uh, a phlebotomist who pulls blood right. versus a cardiac surgeon, right? And uh, even though they both can speak the same Greek and Latin, and that's all this language is, is specialized terminology. And I, I, in my approach is that you need to understand the terminology to have a, a good grasp of the concepts. And I spent a lot of time defining the, the words and telling the stories behind the words like I, I've done you know, on this show. Because it helps give it context. It does. But. No, and it, mixing the the analogies is, is is brilliant. So I got a few more questions here as we sure. we'll get to the top of it. So, um, you know, one thing that always stands out, and and um, I remember at the time when it when it came out in terms of sensor technology from a vibration point of view, and um, you know, I, I think it also relates to you know your analogy of of looking out the the port window and you you failed to look to um, <laughs> other directions is is there's when we're measuring that displacement uh, velocity and then acceleration that can be in different axes yes and how do yeah different directions so how does that come into play and how do we compensate for that if it's moving up down left right you know those type of things so it's another thing that i talk about the commitment to it they go well just go collect vibration data i said okay so if you have a single direction sensor which the vast majority of data collection on a route where you're walking around collecting information at each machine, you're going to do the vertical, the horizontal, and then in line with the shaft, what we call axial measurement. And you're going to do that at every bearings that you can get access to. So if you have a typical setup, let's just talk about a electric motor to a blower fan. It's direct coupled. Mm-hmm. The, it's a between bearings fan. And so you've got the motor non-driving and the motor driving bearing. Then you have the drive coupling. Then you've got a pillow block bearing for the driving of the fan. And then you walk around the other side of the fan and you've got a non-driving pillow block bearing. So you have four bearings. On the electric motor, there's usually a cover on the non-driving side of the motor that protects people from the fan, the cooling fan that's on the back end, right? So you can't really get access to the bearing housing there, uh, to very easily on that electric motor. So you'll take one at the top, but not on that bearing, uh, that fan housing. So you'll do a vertical measurement. You'll go 90 degrees to there and get as close to the bearing housing as possible for the horizontal. And then you'll go to the drive-in side and hopefully you can get access to that if they haven't built a great guard that is guarding and not allowing any access to the front side of that bearing housing. And you'll do another vertical horizontal. So now you've evaluated the motor. Hopefully you can get in line with the sh- with the shaft or an axial. Then you cross the coupling to that first pillow block bearing. Hopefully it's not completely covered by a guard. And you take more measurements in the vertical and the horizontal in that direction. And then you go to the other side of the fan and you do again, vertical, horizontal, and hopefully you get an axial. So you'll have, it, you know, life moves in three directions. So you want to measure vibration data in three directions, vertical, horizontal, and in line with the axis of the shaft. So your axial, right? Right. They can compare them. And I, I, I counsel people all the time. You're in data collection mode. You just take all the data through the train, right? Motor, drive-in, non-drive-in, motor drive-in, 
drive-in fan bearing and then non-drive-in. Now you've got four bearings. Then you go, did any of those trip on alarm? Did they go above what is considered acceptable? And there's a lot of debate on what is acceptable, but there are some general consensus on where the amplitude should be. And so, you know, we have a discussion about what would be acceptable or, or quote normal. And if you had something that that exceeded normal, say, okay, great. What now I'm going to look at the frequency graph and I'm going to get a range. I'm going to see which peaks inside this frequency graph are high. And I can have peaks that are locked with the shaft. Uh, so they're, they're synced with the shaft and they're considered a synchronous problem. You have a whole nother group of problems that are not synced with them. And there's even a third group uh, that has to do with things that are below. And when you come up with that diagnosis, there, there's an eight step protocol that I usually give people say, follow this all the way down. And then you should come up with a reasonable expectation of normal, not more normal. If it's not normal, is it something that uh, I need to take care of right now? Or is it something I should observe for longer? And then what is it? And Dan Ambre has created this fantastic periodic table of vibration analysis. Have you seen that? Uh, it's quite complex. Yeah. <clears throat> I like yeah. it. It's really, it's, it's amazing. In fact, we, we offer people access to that because not only there, there's what you have is the chart or what's on paper, right? Which is good in and of itself. But Dan created a website that you can, you know, gain access to and you can click on each one of those tiles, just like you would looking at potassium and sodium and aluminum and iron and gold on a, on a chemical periodic table from, from back in the day. And it will go deeper dive it to help you understand that. But just the ability to, to categorize problems as either things that are attached to the shaft or things that spin independently of the shaft, like ball bearings and roller bearings, gives you a great ability to differentiate between stuff. And in healthcare, we call it differential diagnosis. So I'll go back to the cough, right? You come in with a cough. Do you have a fever? Yes or no? <clears throat> right. And are you, are you, do you produce anything when you cough? Is it mucus? Is it blood or something like that? And each one of those answers, yes or no, leads you down the path to a different diagnosis of what it could be. And the same thing approach is what I recommend for vibration is bird dogging down. Okay, well, I don't have a belt-driven fan, so I'm not worried about bad belts because they're not physically present. I have a motor coupled to a fan. Then let's say, for example, I noticed the vibration is really high on the motor, but it's really low on the fan. Guess what? I'm not worried about the fan. And we had that at a power plant uh, a little bit west of us here. And they had tried balancing the fan on five different occasions and never got the vibration to go down. And I looked at their sheets for how they did the vibration and the balancing. And I said, wow, you guys do a good job, but your vibration is always big on the motor, not on the fan. The guy goes, yeah, okay, so... Say, so, well, <laughs> the, the source of the problem is where the vibration is highest. So you should look for a problem on the motor, not in the fan. So no wonder your fan balancing job never worked. It was never the fan's problem to begin with. And what we did then is we used a more advanced analysis approach where we took vibration data simultaneously in two locations with two cables and two sensors. And we paired, we had the computer 
pair up the vibration that it was measuring in both sensors and then figure out the timing between it. And it gave us a phase angle that said that the non-drive-in side moves 180 degrees to the drive-in side, meaning they were fighting each other. They weren't moving in sync with each other. And the, one of the most common problems that comes about with that is something called soft foot. So our next thing was to shut down, lock out, tag out the uh, fan. And then we put a dial indicator on each of the four motor feet and each one moved three mils, three mils, three mils, and seven mils. And so one of the foot, one of the feet had a deficit that by cranking on the bolt harder, they were able to, to bind it down. But what they ended up doing because of that soft foot situation, they pulled the motor case out of alignment and that created excessive vibration. So that's how we were able to correlate the vibration data, phase data, and the physical results of that test to point to the problem. We put some extra shims in that one, under that one foot, and the vibration dropped down dramatically, and everybody was both happy and a little bit upset. Yes, <laughs> they had been dealing with this thing. Exactly. Exactly. Years. So we, are, we yeah. are running up here, and this is, I think, geez, Carl, I could probably go another couple hours here, but I, I'm curious. So, you know, you mentioned about, you know, some of the limitations and most of the route-based data is, is single axes. So understanding and, um, you know, the, the, the vibration sensor market is, it evolves by the day. Um, yes. So is, is those three, I'll go back to those three measurements, the displacement, the velocity and the acceleration. Um, each each providing its value depending on the component or failure mode. Um, are, are those different sensors? Can you have a sensor that has it's an accel like can you because acceleration is just um, velocity and then it's over time again. Right. Are, are those different sensors or are they the same sensors that you can get either velocity or acceleration from most sensors so that are out there? The, the the history of the evolution of sensors is fascinating because we started out with displacement probes and they came up with a velocity probe and then they invented the accelerometer. So you have three classes of sensors and you have three domains of vibration analysis and each sensor can generate you know different information. What we found is the accelerometer is the most commonly used sensor in the in the history of vibration and vibration analysis is the accelerometer because it measures all a wide range of frequencies, you can convert information collected with an accelerometer to display acceleration data, velocity data, and displacement. Okay. But there are some errors. So, and there's two classes of accelerometers. There's your piezoelectric accelerometer, which are highly sensitive. And then you have your MEMS accelerometer, mm -hmm. which is where the majority of your wireless market has uh, uses those accelerometers. Although there is, a, I have seen a couple of companies out there, iCare being one of them, that, that they take a piezoelectric accelerometer and put a wireless battery pack on top. So you do get the benefits of an ICP, or uh, I think that's a proprietary term. So let's just say a piezoelectric-based uh, accelerometer versus a MEMS. A MEMS accelerometer is okay for measuring stuff. It's cheap, which right. is really nice. But it's really good at just doing acceleration and then velocity. I haven't found MEMS accelerometers give you enough information that makes it accurate for the displacement mode. And oh, okay. So, yeah. So I, I've seen that 
quite often um, where they, some people just don't allow you to have that data to be displayed. Others do, but I really think that they should, uh, I think they should have a little asterisk on there. that says um, there's inherent errors in conversion. Right. Right. <laughs> that's not going to be a good marketing ploy though. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. But, but that's what you see, right? And you often don't see, you know, you just see these marketing materials of a sensor being mounted on. And, you know, it, I always think it's funny when, people are entering our industry that really don't have a background. You'll see like a sensor mounted on the fan shroud of the non-drive and you were talking about like, sure. yeah, oh, I yeah. want to change your marketing material for that one. Right. Cause anyone's going to yeah. call you out. And I, I see it on LinkedIn all the time and you just see the, the, the diehards just pounce on it. Right. Are you sure you're going to put that sensor there? And I love it. Right. But um, no, so I, I think you, do you have a hard stop here, Carl? No, I do not. No. Oh, okay. Let's spend the next couple hours. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> No, this is this is getting good. And I love how you you brought up the the, the PZO versus the the MEMS, which is an interesting topic. And from the people I've talked to, MEMS is can continue to evolve um, in its in its I guess sensitivity or accuracy, or whatever you want to want to call that. And it was um, interesting to hear your hear your take on that. I, I didn't realize it was really the displacement part that was missing from the from the MEMS in terms of its uh, um, sensitivity or precision. Um, and, and that and that aspect. Um, so when, when you're doing a, a you know, uh, I think you described it well in, in you know, an overall RMS of any three of those variables, whether it's velocity, acceleration, um, an average is, okay, is a machine walking down the hallway or not, right? Like, a, what do they call it? The yeah. dummy switch or something like that, right? Right. Um, but the, the true value of it is is doing that, the spectrum, right? Doing an FFT and, and flipping on its head to get it on the, the velocity, do- uh, sorry, the uh, frequency domain. Yeah. And and do you, do you do that for both velocity and acceleration? So uh, let me get that straight. We're, well, one thing I had, I, I'm sorry, I lost a train of thought because I wanted to let people know when we were talking about, you know, the FFT, I always like to define it. So that's the fast Fourier transform, right? That's the, the software mathematical equation that takes the, the waves from the time domain and turns it into the frequency graph, right? And then amplitude can be measured from the peak of one wave to the peak of, of the bottom of the wave, right? We use that for displacement. In North America, especially in, in the United States, we like to measure from the zero line, like if your if your lake was flat and glassy, and then you called that zero. And then you dropped a stone in the middle of the pond and you counted the waves that went above and below that baseline. Right. We call that zero to peak or peak, right? And then from the with acceleration, when you're measuring the wave, you want the acceleration part of the wave. You don't want the deceleration, the slowdown. So we cut off the top of the wave, right? We do that and we call that RMS or root mean squared. And that's just the math formula to cut off the, the very peak of the vibration wave. So you don't get deceleration factored into your acceleration, right? right. So you have three ways of looking at your data in how far it, it physically moves, how fast it moves, and then how much force it's moving, right? So displacement, velocity, and acceleration. When you're looking with your sensors, you usually use an accelerometer because that gives you the ability to look at all three domains very easily. If you use a displacement probe or a proximity probe, it it can't resolve any waves above 60,000 RPM. So rolling element bearing issues or other high-frequency issues just don't get uh collected they're just not present in the the physical wave of a displacement probe so you're limited based on the probe that you choose 
That's why I talk about you need to invest. If you're going to do a vibration program and you're not going to use a third party, you have to have an investment in making sure that you have an educated person who sets up the program, who understands which sensors are applied to which machine and what the pros and cons and the limitations and and the uh, the open areas of, of information from each one of those choices. So does that kind of answer your question? Or did I no. go yep. Yep. Okay. no, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then when, when selecting a, a sensor out there, I, I hear a lot of back and forth on um, uh, a spec that seems to stand out. And it's always, it's called the F-Max. And people yeah. are like, hey, well, hey what, what's this? The sensor has an F-Max of this. And this is a, what, what is that and why is it important? So the reason it's important is because your frequency, you do not need, your sensor might be a sensor that can resolve vibration issues out to 900,000 cycles per minute. But if you did your math calculation of the potential faults, you might find that you don't need information past 300,000 cycles per minute. And that would be your choice to limit the frequency maximum because it takes time for the analyzer to do all of the math computations. You know, we're so spoiled in this day and age. Mm -hmm. On my phone right now, I'm like, Siri, tell me the population of Botswana in 1964. And in three seconds or less, I get the information. Right. (laughs) Right now, people's series are going off. The population of Botswana in 1965. (laughs) I was half wondering if my own phone would do that and turned it away. So, uh, but on a vibration analyzer, it takes time. And what you don't want when you're doing a route or data collection is you don't, you even for wireless, you don't want to kill your battery doing these insanely intense calculations that have no benefit. So you limit the frequencies that your measurement has uh, on the top end or the maximum frequency. And then you also want to limit the lower end too, so that you don't get the vibration coming from a forklift driving by as you're collecting vibration data. You don't want to get the vibration of, of the ground oscillating because there's a small little defect in the, in, you know, there's a salt dome beneath you or something like that. Mm -hmm. So all of those things, uh, you want to limit both the frequency minimum and the frequency maximum. So you get a good range of usable frequencies for your purpose. You also then reduce the amount of computational time so it speeds along your data collection so that's why those are important Um, it also then helps you determine after you have your maximum frequency and your minimum frequency then you want to know how many lines of resolution or how many slices of your time waveform do you want to use because the thicker the slice the more several frequencies that are next to each other could get squished into a single peak And so one of the triggers for if that's the case is the bottom of the peak will look like a volcano. Right. I born in Hawaii, so I learned a lot about volcanoes when I was a kid. And volcanoes are really wide at the base, and then they narrowly move up until they blow their top, right? So if you have triangles or wide-based peaks at the bottom, it might be a sign that there's several peaks inside there, but you used – a slice that was too thick. So I like to give the analogy of French bread. I have a 10 foot long loaf of French bread because I'm going to feed a hundred people. Well, (laughs) it's long, but if I had a hundred people, I would need 200 slices out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And they'd be a certain thickness. Well, now if I did 200 slices, but I had a foot long for my own lunch the next day and I sliced that 200 times, man, I would have really thin slices of bread, right? Mm -hmm. 
So depending on the, the range or the width of what your frequency group is from your minimum to your maximum, and the number of slices or the lines of resolution you choose will give you the ability to see or not see certain frequencies that are in your measurement. And just because it's in nature doesn't mean that you set up a parameter like me in the boat or the, on the cruise boat ship right, to right. view, right? So, you know, when I was studying biology in undergrad, there was a woman who is famous now, but I forget her name, but she was trying to prove that elephants in Africa have large ears for sound waves, not just as air conditioning. Because one of the things that big elephants have is they flap their ears back and forth, and that's their air conditioning to cool off their blood. But she theorized that they could actually speak uh, sounds that we just didn't hear. It's called infrasound or below human hearing level sound. And she used some big speakers and did some recordings, found some frequencies, replayed them and had elephants coming from all over the place. And people were shocked. And she goes, just because we couldn't hear it doesn't mean it didn't exist always. Same thing with your vibration measurement. If you set up a frequency minimum that is too high for what you're trying to capture in the low frequency band, you'll miss it or the frequency maximum. Um, there's an ISO standard for vibration uh, overall levels called it's ISO 10816-3 for rotate equipment. And then they have a special one for pumps is 10816-7. If you read the rules on it, it is only an overall vibration measurement standard. It is not meant to be applied to a spectrum yet. So many. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. If you read the parameters, it's, it doesn't have a handing window. It has a 60,000 cycle per minute F max. It's not designed to find bad bearings. It was never designed there because it was designed as an acceptance test for new machine equipment. In fact, when you look at that beautiful chart, right? Anyone Google right now, ISO 10816-3, look at images and you will see this beautiful stoplight graphic, green, orange, yellow, red. I mean, it's, it looks beautiful, but... If you look at what each color means, yellow says long-term operation allowable. And yellow is always a caution in our world, right? Yeah. Orange says short-term operation allowable. And so you start going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Green is good, but yellow is still good? Well, that doesn't make sense to me. Well, again, it was not designed for predictive maintenance purposes. It was just an overall go, no-go not to be applied to a spectrum. Yet so many computer software engineers have added that in there. And in fact, it's a sales tactic where they'll say, hey, you don't even have to set alarms. We already set in the ISO alarms. And people who don't know that standard, right. who don't know vibration, go, cool. And then they pop red alarms all over the place because they set a frequency maximum outside of the parameters. So more energy was in the measurement. So the overall value went up. And it looks like it's a bad thing when it really isn't. And I hate saying looks like because my radiology instructor was like, if you ever say the word looks like on a report, I will kill you. Right. It either is or it is not. <laughs> Understood. It's binary. Yeah, oh, that's, exactly. that's, that's interesting. Yeah, and I, I'm sure as many listeners have. I, I pulled that up as well. Um, ISO 10816-3, and then I saw kind of a heat map there, right, with red, yes. yellow, green, yep. and blue. Interesting. That's interesting. It seems all the measurements there are in velocity. 
it is velocity. Uh, and it's what I use it for is there's usually on the, on the Y axis on the right side, it'll give it to you in inches per second RMS and in millimeters per second RMS. And that has been very helpful for an American who's crippled by the Imperial system. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> to go, so I'm going to go, well, this thing's moving at seven millimeters per second. I'm like, hold on. And I'll look that up and go, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's good good yeah so uh but you know again it, it's not a bad standard it's fine but know the limitations know what it was designed for well exactly understand the context of which it was written yeah right exactly. it's very easy nowadays just as you said with siri to take that image and not know the context behind it exactly right? And that, yeah. that's kind of what's uh, what's happening in our in our world recently. So, no, I appreciate this, Carl. This this was fantastic. I definitely learned. Um, I won't chew up too much of your time here, but I do want to give you an opportunity to um, allow the listeners, um, if you so choose to, to, to hand out any information you want on how they can get in touch with you, your website, uh, anything you want to plug. Sure. Okay. Well, I'm fortunate that I have an unusual name. There are not many Hoff hours, so you know, H-O-F-F-O-W-E-R. You can find me on all the socials. If you just typed in Carl or Dr. Carl, you can find that. Um, my company's Failure Prevention Associates. So we're at failureprevention.com. And, uh, you know, if you need some help, where we've expanded is really into predictive maintenance is our bread and butter, but we now do skill gap assessments because we've noticed that first time fix rates were starting to go down. And as I like to popularize, I didn't invent the term, but I like to popularize the silver tsunami is washing away know-how, knowledge, and skills. And we're here to help put some of that back for people. So uh, we'll take a look at your systems, take a look at your process. And, you know, you always have to start with the people. It's people first, then the process, then we go down to how you're actually, you know, your product or your assets are. So uh, happy to talk with more people about that if they so choose. But Blair, I really appreciate the forum and the time, uh, you know, and that you... uh, Thought that I had something nice enough to say. I knew you did, and you knocked it out of the park. Again, it's one of those ones where I think we could just keep on chatting. And it was my own selfish needs as well as I'm trying to learn the the vibration side of things a little more intimately. And I do have a personal question for you, though, Carl. Sure. Um, Early on when I first met, well, no, it's not when we first met, but um, I was next to you in a booth. And this this was New Orleans at the Vibration Institute Conference. Oh, wow. And, okay. And, yeah. And um, you were handing out <laughs> spices called Slap Your Mama. Yes, sir. With your logo. And it was fantastic. And I took two or three and I still have them to this day. Are you still fantastic. doing that? <laughs> I am. I think about I you every time um, that comes up. Well, then it's working. It Thank is. You, uh, absolutely. So keep on doing that. <laughs> so we had to order 22,000 cans of this wonderful Cajun seasoning called Slapper Mama, which uh, I only want to hear as a noun, not as a verb. I don't want to right. hear any actions of someone doing that, but it is, it's really good spice. And the funny part is, is that that was where we made a big debut. We'd been handing it out to our clients individual, but the first time we ever handed it out at a trade show was actually at that Vibration Institute um, in New Orleans. And even the, uh, the great people that help put on the show, all the people that do the lighting and the power and, and clean up and stuff, they came by and said, 
if there was an award for the best giveaway, y'all got the best giveaway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I'm a testament to that taking three. I'm like, Carl, turn his back, grab a couple more. And it was it was funny because I I I'm you know, I'm in Canada, so I had to go back and got to go through customs and um I had to take them out of my bag and they're like, What's this? I'm like, I slap your mama. <laughs> they're like, say what? I'm like, I slap your mama spices. And they're like, okay. <laughs> What's so the, we they, just, they, they want to know the dollar value. I'm like, I don't know. It's a giveaway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no dollar value, but it's, uh, we just ordered another few thousand cans and we're having to wait. So I'm down to my last case and a half. I see it right behind me up on the shelf. Uh, and it's in big demand. So make me this one promise. If you need more, just please ask me. I'm happy <laughs> to ship you some more cans and, and fight customs for you. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> well, I think well, I think we'll run across each other soon as the uh, conferences start to pick up and stuff. So I'll, I'll bring a little uh, gift bag that you can fill up with spices. <laughs> and my, my family and friends here will thank you. Everybody loves it. I mean, what's amazing is we learned about it on crawfish. Now people put it on eggs and rice and yeah. uh, all sorts of different things. So, yeah, feel free to do that. So if you want that to your audience, if they want a can of that, well, then you got to, you know, you got to reach out to me. So. That's right. That's right. So okay. Hopefully we can do some business. But yeah. Perfect. Excellent. Thanks, Carl. Thank you. I really appreciate the time. This is a great chat. Excellent. Thank you too, Blair. Take care.